Butcher Shop, Smartphone, and Primal Path. Today on The Pursuit, John Tyson. Welcome to Season 2 of The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and our guest today is John Tyson. John is the lead pastor of Church of the City in Manhattan, which meets in three locations. Prior to that, he was the founding pastor of Trinity Grace Church, which grew to 11 churches in various neighborhoods throughout New York City. John has always had a gift for interpreting the changing cultural landscape of the city and the church. And what I found so fascinating was sitting down and talking about how his decision to leave Trinity Grace Church came to be. So John, as an Australian, how do you feel about the Outback Steakhouse? Well, honestly, I think it is uh, one of the most authentic expressions of Australia. You know, I grew up every day eating a blooming onion for lunch. Mum would come to school and deep fry an onion for me. It's as authentic as the Olive Garden is to Italians. <laughs> so how, how many years did you spend in Australia growing up? So I lived in Australia. I was born in Melbourne, lived there till I was two, lived in Perth from two to ten, then Adelaide from 10 to 20. Okay. So 20 years in Australia. What made you move around so much? I mean, is that moving around a lot? Was that three locations in 20 years? Feels like, you know, pretty stable <laughs> compared to modern life. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't 10 years, to... 10 to 20. I mean, I did basically sixth grade to adulthood yeah. in one city. Okay. Yeah. I didn't mean to recolor your childhood. Wow. <laughs> judging my Australian <laughs> pilgrimage. Then I've, so I just turned 43. So I've been in America uh, more than half my life. I've wow. been in New York coming up on 15 years. So this is the longest I've ever lived anywhere. Yeah. Did you grow up like in faith? Did you grow up in the church? Yeah, I grew up with uh, very, very wonderful parents, very typical Australian parents. Um, you know, they were very wise. I had no interest in God, zero. I just, I mean, it's not even that I didn't even believe it was true or untrue. I just didn't care. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my parents, I think, had this strategy of removing rebellion from my life, which was basically just remove any rules so he has nothing to fight against. Really? Yeah, so for example, I had no curfew. Like at 13, I had no real curfew. So what time would you get just come home? Whenever I got tired, man. You know, I mean, like all the normal things that are parent would hope would happen through rules basically happened through fatigue you know so you get tired <laughs> you come home every now and then you stay out late and then they'd say well you know suffer the consequences mate you got to get up early and do your homework and yeah. whatever and so i mean i think they would never have express express it like this but they would have said that reality is the best teacher you can't fight reality mm. you know so for them i think uh, they basically worked really hard to, to remove the parameters that gave me all of this fuel for rebellion um, so I stopped going to church when I was about 13. Just said, stuff it. And they said, okay, great. Yeah. For your parents, was that a, a point of anxiety for them or worry? I mean, I'm sure they were freaking out. <laughs> like uh, now as a parent, I know, you know, the goal of parenting is just to smile and say, oh, no worries, man. Let me know if you want to talk about it. And then you start a 40-day liquid fast. <laughs> you know, you just smile like it's nothing and then you yeah. just freak out in private. I'm sure all of that stuff happened. Yeah, I'm just such a black sheep. I mean, they all live out in the country, not, not the outback because that's a stereotype, <laughs> but they basically live out the equivalent of the middle of Pennsylvania 
in a tiny little rural town. Yeah. So, so you know, I live two blocks from Times Square. That's where we're sitting right now. And uh, I've always loved cities, culture, yeah. busyness, hype, size. I love all that stuff and they just disdain it. They just couldn't, they, they had no framework to parent you. You were just this wild child. Yeah, well, it's not even that I was, you know what it was? So um, I'm a four on the Enneagram. Okay. So I'm a dramatic dreamer, you know, ever since I've been born, I've known I was special, <laughs> you know? And uh, so I basically looked at sort of like a pretty boring, I'm a four with the three wing, it's almost indistinguishable. So I'm really driven to be special. They just didn't have a framework. I, I, in many ways, have like a pretty atypical Australian personality. What is the typical? Well, I mean, the typical Aussie male. And, you know, so another part of my story, I dropped out of high school when I was 16 to work in a meat factory. I got a job when I was 14 in a butcher shop. And at 16, I dropped out of high school. And so it's, you know, sort of like very blue collar, sort of mechanic, beer drinking, football loving, yeah. working class, right. you know, fights when drunk you know, emotionally repressed, right. wife who puts up with all of the male dysfunction. Mm. Yeah, sort of one of those sort of personalities. That's like a, Australia in general. And I was always like a visionary, a dreamer, listening to soundtracks, always believing that I'm going to get out of this place, you know, born to run. I mean, you know, one of these days I'm just going to blow this place and yeah. do something. <laughs> I think I've seen this movie. Right? <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's like that's actually every American adolescent film that was pumped into Australia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you're, yeah, you're working in this butcher shop. Yes. Wielding knives, cutting meat. Yeah, just, just you know, getting the crap beaten out of me by older men. Like Take, physically? Yes, but I mean, not... I mean, in the sense of male persecution and bonding. I see. I see. But not like Tyson sucks because that would be elite, but just like definitely that, right. the gauntlet of proving yourself amongst older men. So how did you- So I did an official apprenticeship. Everybody talks about being an apprentice of Jesus. I'm like, I did an actual apprentice- Apprenticeship for four years, a legally indentured apprenticeship with the Meat and Livestock Association of Australia. And uh, I'm telling you, apprenticeship's a great idea. Everybody who's talking about it with Jesus is talking about apprenticeship on their terms. And trust me, when you're an apprentice, it's hard, man. Mm. You don't dictate the forms of formation. So then how did you become a Christian? I became a Christian. Uh, so my mum was a school teacher. And she used to run the, the theater, the plays, you know. Okay. She invited me to come to one of the plays she was running. The star girl in the play is like Winnie from The Wonder Years. Yeah, I've seen this movie as well. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's like the, the music comes on. I'm like, who is that girl? So uh, I basically said to my mom, who is that, who is that girl? And she said, oh, yeah, well, this is, it was this, I don't want to say her name because right. she's still a real human. <laughs> And, Who's uh, not your wife? And the internet, it's not my wife, and the internet is a small place. And uh, I basically said to my mum, wow, who is that girl? Can you get me her phone number? So somehow I got this girl's phone number. And I called her up and asked her to her prom, even though I was a high school dropout. But I remember just like just summoning the courage. And uh, I remember her saying, you know, well, quite a few. Did she know who you were? I mean, just only by reputation. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she said, quite a few people have asked me, but I really respect your courage. So I'm going to go with you. And uh, so I started going out with her and uh, she went to this big Pentecostal youth group. Okay. You know, God was really working in her life. And uh, she said, you know, if you want to go out with me, you know, I'd like you to come along to this. And so I just rolled in. And basically about eight months later was a tongue speaking, slaying in the spirit, fire breathing Pentecostal. Wow. And then I just got swept up into a vision of the kingdom of God. Yeah. The strongest non-cult like culture I've ever encountered to this day. Breathtaking mm. leadership, breathtaking culture. I mean, just extraordinary. And 
Some people would deconstruct my understanding of my experience and say it's because you were young, you were formative, you were looking for a spiritual father, sure. you needed a course for your life, you're four, you're looking for adventure, you're trapped in this meat factory, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, maybe, but it's irrelevant because they still created the thing that activated that. I, I feel like there's something about the Australian Christian movement, like the Korean Christian movement, the idea, the impression that people get is that Koreans pray a lot. And there's like a whole thing around that, the culture, the the Christian culture around that. But there seems to be just a very strong Australian passion and Christian culture. Why is that? Uh, that's completely wrong. <laughs> no, no. no really? Yes, totally. You've basically got three or four outliers. No, but I've just met so many Australian. Okay, so with 20 plus million people, you've met 15 <laughs> of the best pioneering Australians. Well, don't run the numbers. No, 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 I'm serious. It's such a misnomer. Australia, the Australian church is, it's struggling badly. I mean, it's like the equivalent of, it's, that's like saying, hey, there's 10 mega churches of 10,000 people, therefore the American church is in renewal. 50% of all churches in America are going to close in the next 30 years. This is mm. the greatest time of decline. But because of things like social media and understanding, right. things do seem to grow. Now, what you're addressing, so if you were to go to Australia expecting this amazing culture, you'd be so disillusioned. Mm. But there is something about a tiny little slither of the Australian church that basically carries a Pentecostal overcoming spirit, a spirit of faith, a spirit of expectation. Yeah. And those are the people primarily you've met. Yeah. I guess it's because I'm only seeing the exports, right? And you're not going to export something that's not working, something that's not thriving. You're going to export the thing that is thriving. And so I'm judging it based well, on Hills, the exports. Hillsong, I mean, Hillsong's the greatest example. I mean, Hillsong is... I mean, people always say to me, like, you know, because I'm, I'm quite a theologically driven person and, mm -hmm. like, I care a lot about cultural analysis and missiology post-Christian culture, what do you think of Hillsong? And I'm like, Hillsong is a move of God. I don't even have a category for Hillsong. Right. But people say, well, you know, what, what is it that makes Hillsong so great? I'm like, God's hands on them. That's it. That's the, that's the factor. Yeah, their production's great. Yeah, they've got, like, a very disciplined leadership pipeline. Yeah, they've been at it for 30 years and built an amazing flywheel. Here's the point. God's hands on them. Yeah. That's it. I mean, yeah. so you can't take Hillsong and then normalize it and say this is Australian Christianity. Yeah. Hillsong was American Christianity in Australia. Is that right? Absolutely. Hillsong took the best of the American church and left a bunch of the worst of it. Yeah. And then imported that to Australia and there was nothing like it. Yeah. So how did you end up, once you became a Christian in Australia, how did you end up moving on in ministry? Um, so basically my two best mates at the time, Glenn Seely and... Uh, a guy named Lee Eden, uh, we drove on holidays like a, 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 around the bottom of the coast of Australia from Adelaide to Sydney for an event called Wonderfest. Okay. And it was basically um, like a youth conference, think Acquire the Fire, but at a big theme park, like Jesus meets Six Flags over whatever. Really? So, yeah, no, seriously. And uh, But you could camp in town. We stayed at a caravan park and all the rest of it. And our DC Talk and Whiteheart were doing a concert. Of course they were. Yeah. And I remember just not liking it and then going off into this um, this field to pray. Mm -hmm. and I'm out praying in this field and I just have this overwhelming encounter with God that I'm meant to come to America, like a call to America. Had you wanted to go to America before that? I mean, in the same way that you've wanted to go to Australia. Right. I mean, you know, like I've always loved the US, but 
the thought of moving to America and right. becoming American. I mean, you know, I didn't have a grid for where we're sitting right yeah, now. Yeah, sure. I go back and tell my youth pastor, I think God's calling me to America. And uh, he said, why would he do that? I mean, you know, Australia's filled with non-Christians. Mm. America's filled with Christians. And he said this phrase, uh, America's filled with seminaries, pumping out pastors. And I, I honestly remember thinking, what you're saying is probably true. It's just not true for me. The principle doesn't apply in this circumstance. And uh, so I just would, so I just spent time praying, God, open a door. If you want me to go to America, God, open a door. And then one day, through a very, very miraculous act of the sovereignty of God, my dad calls me at the butcher shop and says, hey, man, um, you know, I, I want to serve God. I, I want to be a pastor. I don't know what I want. I want to serve God. That's my category. Right. Evangelist, pastor, preacher, prayer warrior. I don't know. I just know I don't want to chop up dead animals for a living. Like I want to serve God. My dad calls me and says, do you have a heart to go to America? I said, yes. He goes, well, I've just uh, got a phone call and you've got a scholarship to study theology in America for four years if you want to go. Wait, wait. Yeah. And so that's- Wait, no, no, like who, how would, who just calls up your dad and says we want to- It's such a long story, mate. I, we probably honestly can't get into it, but it's, it's a long story about my dad and a friend of his when they were young. Wow. Making an agreement to help one another through their lives. And then that guy becoming the president of a denomination in Australia. And then hearing I became a Christian and said, I'd like to help John if I can. Wow. And um, he had a friend who was the president of a Bible college in America where his daughter was attending and um, called in a favor. And so wow. as a high school dropout, they let me in. You never finished high school? No. Then I never finished college. And then I never finished seminary until, you know. Okay. So you, you go right to seminary. Yeah. I go to, I go to study, I go to Bible college. Bible college. Yes. In the States. Yes. By yourself. And what was that like? I don't think culture shock is a strong enough, a culture trauma. Is that a, a thing? Wow. Yeah. I went from a meat factory to a tiny town in the Northeast Georgia in the mountains. Think deliverance. Think. Oh man. But I loved it, mate. It was like, uh, I really did. Loved it. It was a, just like the best year of my life. Just one year. Just one year there. Met my wife and I was like, I think we're good here. She had basically done a gap year. She'd, she'd left home, she'd worked. And so we were sort of like a little older than the typical freshman and we just yeah. had a different vision. And I was basically like, look, I came here to bend Western culture towards redemption. I'm not here to just like party or, you know. That was your, that was your pickup line. I came to bend Western culture I mean, towards redemption. It's a long redemption. story, but basically I decided to marry my wife when I said, Look, I'm trying to be, <laughs> I'm trying to be like greatly used by God in this generation. And if you're not, you know, will you go anywhere and do anything? Because if you, if you will, we should probably get married. And if you won't, we need to just sort of call it a day. Wow. And she basically said, I'm willing to go anywhere and do anything. I was like, all right, let's get on with it. So then what happens after that? You leave Bible college? Yeah, go get married. Yeah. And then just basically pursue God's call on my life, man. So where do you Finishing end up? Finishing up theology. I go to Texas for a bit. I'm in Nashville three and a half years. I leave Nashville. I go to Orlando. I'm in Orlando two and a half years. In the midst of that, you know, I obviously get married. I have two kids. Um, I'm learning a lot about um, the absolute best and worst of the American megachurch. Now we're talking basically to the year two. Yeah, this is 97 to 04. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what was happening in the Christian church in America at that time? So I'm just chasing all that stuff, mate, trying to see where God's moving. This is Willow Creek, purpose-driven, and then this is emerging church. This is right. the introduction of postmodernism, like genuinely people understanding, suspicion of meta-narratives, you know, anti 
charismatic pastor, authoritarian figures, blah blah blah. Yeah. So it was so it was a lot of that that sort of stuff. And I heard in somewhere in there at an Andy at the Catalyst conference. Yeah. I think it was the first year the Catalyst conference. Yeah, probably. Was, Andy Stanley in a passing comment said when I planted North Point. And I remember just saying, what is that? What do you mean? And it was the first time consciously in my life the idea of starting a church entered my head. Really? And so I was always super entrepreneurial, crazy high pain threshold, massive risk tolerance, you know, bet the farm, lose it all, and honestly not be phased. So I was always starting ministries, was always starting new initiatives. And when I realized you could be rewarded rather than penalized for doing that, I sensed a vocational call. Wow. And so that was it. Yes, yeah, so that was maybe, gosh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, 01, 2000, I don't know. I mean, it was really early back then. Yeah. And then I heard about church planning and that was it. I was like, okay, this is actually what I think I'm supposed to do with my life. And then it was like, well, where do you do it? And then I basically... Um, realized I've always been an urban guy. I've always loved cities. Um, I just started to think about making a difference in a place that that really needed the gospel, needed church planning. Came up to New York in 01 after 9-11. And I uh, actually stayed crazily enough just a couple of blocks from where we are right now. Okay. Stayed at the Doubletree Hotel in Times Square. Came up to pray at Brooklyn Tab, see their prayer ministry. And I uh, was so seized with the vision of New York. I stayed up all night walking around Hell's Kitchen, just wandering around saying, what is this great metropolis? I must, I must be a part of this great metropolis. I felt so drawn here. Wow. And I was like, these are my people, yeah. driven, visionary, risk-taking, faith-filled, ambitious. I remember as we were leaving New York, driving through Midtown and seeing a woman in a Starbucks window. This is before there was really any great coffee in New York. I mean, it was really, it was a sad Sad season. But I remember driving through New York and seeing this woman and just seeing her with a laptop in a window and just thinking, that right there is a, that is a parable or that mm. is a prophetic picture. And something in my deepest part of my being said, I want that life. I want to be in New York working on something in a coffee shop. And you know what? I'm living that dream. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we started, you know, an hour ago in a coffee shop. Yeah. Great coffee this morning. Yeah, it's very good coffee. Yeah. So when you, f- so how you move up to New York. Yeah. Yeah. We, I move up to New York in dramatic fashion. Of course. It's before the housing crisis. I sell my house, make a chunk of money. So between this, I worked at various student ministries. I led a ministry in Orlando, a youth ministry called The Element, and started a 20-something ministry called Status. But it was right when Relevant Magazine was getting started, and it was basically seriously the absolute beginning of the emerging church, Gen X, post-mega church. Sure. It was it was candles and and yeah. coffee shops and and, it, and and people look back and mock that now. But as someone who like literally was trying to follow Jesus in, in my early to mid-20s in the middle of that, I think all of us had some deep psychic sense culture is changing. The pragmatic suburban driven reality is not what not the future I want. So I was a part of a ministry there that grew substantially and the team that led that basically I, I talked into God led into all of us selling all of our possessions and moving to New York to start a church together. <laughs> so you know it was a book of acts. We put the money into a shared pot and we paid off everybody's debts and it was a pretty special time. So you land in New York what year? Oh five. Oh five. Yep. And plant a church? What type of church is it? I mean how do you plant a church mate? There was almost no books back then. Right. Never heard of anybody. Tim Who. Right. This is all by the way, you you remember this because you're from this area, you've yeah. been around a long time. New York before the smartphone is a completely different city. Super local culture, very, very strong, distinct neighborhood identities. And basically the way you navigated the city was basically through 
class identification with like historic neighborhoods and institutions, you basically felt represented you. Like people found each other and bonded on those things. Now that stuff happens primarily online rather than in yeah. person. So the Upper West Side where I first moved had a very, very distinct identity. It still does, but the Upper West Side is basically like a T-Mobile store and a Dwayne Reed. You know what I mean? It's like the <laughs> whole thing, much of it is gone, that deep local culture. So back then it was all relationships and that's what we basically worked on navigating. And so, yeah, we just started, man. I mean, just. And this was Origins. Yeah, man. I just would walk around. I mean, this is going to, this is how naive I was. I basically prayed about eight hours a day, walking around New York, trying to pray every street and just saying, Lord, Paul went to places of interest and met people like Lydia, who God opened their heart to believe the gospel and the church was started. So, Lord, lead me to people whose hearts you're trying to open so we can start a church here. And I just would talk to everybody. Now, John, is that strategic? Is that like... It's biblical. I don't know if it's strategic. I was like, look, here's the book of Acts. Here's what I want to see. Right. Okay, what did they do in the book of Acts? And I'm going to go and try and do that in Manhattan. So you started as Origins Church. Yes. And take me through the journey to Trinity Grace Church. Oh, boy. I mean, that's... I mean, I, I would struggle to do a 30-minute version on that. Yeah, I mean, gosh, what, what do you want to know specifically? Yeah, so specifically, you started with one church in one location. Then we did one church in three locations. Upper West Side, Chelsea, Upper West Side, Upper East Side, or maybe we did the Upper East Side as Trinity Grace. And so that's, and that's you at, at each location? Yeah, man, on a Vespa. Yeah. <laughs> Loving my life, driving between services. Right, that's the other parable. Is. Yes, <laughs> yes, me on a Vespa. I did that for five years, loved it, never been happier. Still trying to get that back. So here's what, here's what I basically noticed. We're in the Upper West Side and we had all these college kids coming from downtown. And I just was like, what? The neighborhood that I live in that I've walked around that I now am beginning to understand, the people who are, I'm doing church for, none of them are from here. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I did have this moment where this girl comes up to me from Alabama and she says, I love your church. It's exactly like my church back home. And I remember just thinking, I went to Alabama once, I got lost there. And if I'm in the Upper West Side of Manhattan and this girl thinks that it's identical to where she was, I think I've planted the wrong kind of church. Mm. Not in terms of people, I had wonderful people, but just in terms of like philosophy, methodology, contextualization. That started me on a deep internal journey. So I would basically do real-time contextualization while preaching. So I'd preach in the Upper West Side in the morning and then I'd go down to Chelsea at night and, um, and then I would basically modify my analogies and cultural references live. And that made me start thinking, hey, maybe there's something to doing church differently in different kinds of neighborhoods that basically reflect sort of the, the cultural embodiment of that particular community. And in many ways, that's what started the transition from origins to Trinity Grace. Also at the time as well, you've got to, you've got to understand New Yorkers were deeply, deeply suspicious of outside evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And so the name Origins was a great postmodern, suburban, urban 2004 brand. Right. It was like pretty good, you know? Yeah. But I wanted a church that sounded like it had been in New York a hundred years. You know, it's like it sounded like it had been here forever, so you couldn't dismiss it. Right. But then you were deeply surprised that it was filled with so many young people and so much passion and faith. Mm. That was the that was sort of like the contextual goal. I think in many ways we achieved that. But then another generation basically emerged after all of that where many of those things were completely irrelevant. Right. The cell phone changed everything. Yeah. Apps changed everything. How people navigate life, sort of a, a flattened out shared 
online cultural identity. And as someone who's like in many ways a missiologist, I was like, you know, I often say those who know me well, it's like you can stand and roar at the sea all you want. You can decree and command, but the tide will always come in. And I was like, we had a missiological structure in many ways that was yelling at the sea. And mm. I was like, I just, I think in many ways saw the tide coming in. Yeah, I, Another generation has emerged. We're in a generation shift. Yeah. Um, and I basically saw the way that we functionally did life. Everybody was yelling about incarnation and loving your neighborhood. And I was watching young people literally get online with apps and use their screen as a portal out of their neighborhood to connect with wherever they found life. Mm. Where I saw the reality of how people meet and connect and understand church, relationships, connection, Uber changed the game here in New York, the ability to reasonably cheaply and safely navigate neighborhoods so you're not stuck relying on trains or hopefully randomly getting a taxi. That changed that structurally changed people's willingness to, to commute around the city. And, um, you know, apps like Tinder and all the other apps where basically people were willing to just connect online with strangers changed people's vision of the city. So rather than it being deeply neighborhood-centric, like, you know, I'm from the Upper West Side, I'm never going to leave my neighborhood. Younger yeah. folks would lived where they could afford, moved when necessary, connected as they could and built their lives around that. So this is that moment a couple of years ago, right? Where you end up, you've built up Trinity Grace. It had been 11. It was, I wasn't, look, uh, I was not the sole factor of Trinity Grace. Of course, I had an right. amazing, amazing team, very rich brotherhood of yeah. people who were like on mission together. Yeah. So it's a very, very uh, functional sacrificial team who built that, but it did end up being yeah, what my my dream, which in some sense was we had a missional megachurch in the middle of New York. It was what, like 11? 11 locations, thousands of people, millions of dollars. I mean, it was real. Yeah. And so then you decide to leave. Yeah. I mean, there's inst there's internal factors personally in my own leadership. Yeah. There's uh, internal factors with the church, you know, things like philosophy of ministry, uh, a lot of complexities around model and mission. And then lastly, there was basically external factors, like what I saw happening, where I saw things going. Internally, you know, I'd, I'd turned 40 and I basically try to have a theologically informed midlife crisis. And uh, so one of my mentors basically said, Tyson, your personality is going to like just absolutely be blindsided by midlife. <laughs> I was like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm good. He's like, trust me, lean into it. So I basically read all the books on halftime stuff. And I, I came away with this very small insight, which is this. It's what I called sovereign themes, which is... God had sovereignly marked my life with a few things that if you heard, you know, all stories of redemption have similar elements and there's similar things in our lives. But there was a few things about my story that you would go, that's crazy, man. That is uncommon. You know, that's so distinct. These themes are so distinct in your life. And I thought, what if they weren't some accident I ignored, but actually the clues to the rest of my life? Mm. What if God had put these here because I was meant to build on them, not just like randomly observe them? And so I got clarity on what they are. And then I basically realized um, much of my current reality didn't embody very many of these things at all. Mm. Those were internal factors. Um, internal to the church, I think... Look, man, leadership is hard. Mm -hmm. Leading 11 lead pastors, having 11 lead pastors. We, we weren't um, a multi-site model. We were a multi-congregational model. Right. So trying to have a shared theology, mission, ethics, practices, authority is tough. And I'm sure I made a ton of leadership mistakes that I, I could have done better. But in essence, I basically realized at the end of the day, it would net out to, I'm just not sure I believe that what I want to give my life for is um, the way our model, I would say, had calcified. Hmm. And I wanted uh, something a little more flexible. But these guys who had 
sacrificed, many of them, you know, made tremendous sacrifices and had been very faithful. I either had a choice. I felt like I could power up as the founding pastor and demand that everybody do what I thought should happen. Or I could basically leave and do what I felt I was called to. Yeah. And does my conviction get to dictate everybody else's call? Right. I don't think it does. Meaning Trinity Grace was a shared project. But I, I don't, in some sense, I didn't feel like it was mine to say, I want to change a bunch of stuff. It's going to look unrecognizable to anything we're currently doing. I just didn't feel like, in some sense, it was mine to make happen like that. Right. I felt like it was as much everybody else's. And I can't presume to speak for them, but many of them, I think, in many ways felt very happy with what they were doing. Not necessarily the structure or how it was being led or whatever, but like in essence, they were living their call. I want to pastor a church in this neighborhood. Yeah. And I was like, my primary goal is not neighborhood church anymore. I love it. It's legitimate. It's just not my primary expression. So I didn't want to try and drag everybody into what I perceived should happen. And I'm not even sure that there would have been like theological or methodological shared emphasis if I had. Right. And uh, in many senses, it sort of felt a little bit, you know, like it was a hard, it was a very hard decision, hard choice. Now, Church of the City, yes. is it a different model? Is it? Yes, yeah, a totally different model. It's basically uh, very charismatic. You know, our vision is basically on discipleship and vocation rather than place. And uh, I think it's, it acknowledges transiency as a part of the reality way more than stability. Mm. How do you do that? How do you acknowledge that? Well, it's, it's basically much of it is about pastoral expectation and basically ministry design. Mm. You know, so if you realize in, in some sense, it's a lot more like college ministry where it's like, I realize I'm probably going to have these people only for a few years being honest. And again, all of this is formed by where I am. I'm in the middle of Manhattan. Yeah. If I was like in the real New York, which is basically the boroughs where people have been there multi-generationally right. and they have stability and they own and that, you know, I, I'm sure I'd have a very different approach, mm. but again, it's where I am. And uh, so it's the upper West side, the upper East side of Midtown. Um, this, this is a very transient place. And so I basically realized I have a very limited amount of time to help these people or to disciple these people. Therefore, I have to probably be a little more strategic and urgent in what I'm trying to basically impart to them. Mm -hmm. And um, that shapes a lot of what we do. So one of the projects that you've been working on is uh, Primal Path. Tell us about the sort of the genesis of this Primal Path journey with yeah. your son, Nate. I got married young. You know, in college, met that woman. She said, I'll go and do anything. And I was like, it's on. So, yeah, I've been married 21 years. And uh, we had kids right away. So I have a son who's 19. I have a daughter who's 16. And um, I basically realized as someone who had been well discipled by mentors and as someone who'd been a youth pastor, mm -hmm. both in the small little churches and also read like had helped lead um, large traditional program-based um, megachurch yeah. student ministry. But that both of those things were pretty ineffective at actually really forming disciples of Jesus. And I, I saw very, very few parents who knew how to disciple their kids. They hadn't been handed the tools. And so as someone who cared about discipleship, had been, had been well mentored as a young man, uh, I, I basically had this vision of like, okay, how do I help my kids? My son who was older, like how do I help them move from adolescence into manhood, yeah. into adulthood? I basically realized almost nothing exists. But I felt like my, my son's soul was at stake. So yeah. I basically just read the canon on men's ministry, parenting, whatever I could get my hands on, and then basically said, okay, here's what I think is missing. An initiation formation process that helps a kid 
you know, like basically enter into puberty and then walks him into manhood skillfully. Yeah. And so I basically spent a long time designing it. And then at 13, initiated my son into it and then took him through it. Then Willingly? Th- well, at 13, mate, you do what your dad tells you. Right. And whatever you do. Well, mate, you didn't. Well, you know, if my dad had done this, I probably would have. Right. You know? So yeah, basically did that. And then he just finished it. We just hiked 500 miles across Spain. And he ended up basically being baptized as a man in uh, off the coast of Finisterre, off the coast of Spain after hiking 500 miles and completing a gap year. Wow. So I spent, I don't know, 45 minutes a day for all my six years with him, pouring into him. That was it, man. That's the primal path. And then I got to the end of it and I, and I realized along the way there was a bunch of dads like me because I'd had kids young, you know, maybe probably 10 years ahead of my peers or so in yeah. general, particularly here in New York. So I basically realized I was several years ahead of a lot of other people and they were bumping into that holy crap, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Right. Like that void in, in Christianity, right. a formation. And uh, so I had a bunch of people just constantly reaching out saying, I see on social media you're doing this stuff with your son, what is it? So I basically at some point just turned it into a course. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. So what is it? It's, it's, so it's basically a tool to help you build a formation pathway for your son from adolescence into manhood is basically what it is. So it's basically um, a series of exercises a dad does to figure out who his son is, his own unique story, and the great arc of formation that existed through almost every culture but ours, and then to, to craft an amazing experience for their son to walk through this. So basically, it's, um, it's reading, it's rhythm, it's experiences. It's basically the goal is to connect with your son every day. Mm-hmm. And um, so you know, that's how you maintain like a relationship over life. It's those daily, small, inconsequential connections. Yeah. Building the emotional bond that becomes rich over time. Then it's weekly, basically... It's sounds very cliche but it's like man school it's like you do one night a week which is basically like a deep dive into the formation and development yeah and then um like monthly experiences we go out and you do something you know that yeah. sort of makes the butt the blood move you know yeah. fills the heart with faith imagination and then there's all these these moments along the way where you recognize the progress so, so if you can imagine um Dope Boy Scouts with a father and son for the soul. Right. In terms of like, they're not badges or whatever, but they're basically marks of progress over the course of time. You know, so that's, I basically, so that's basically what it is. Primalpath.co. And I'm, so I'm working on one for my daughter right now because, it, it, you know, I mean, people suck, man. I spent 10 years working <laughs> on this thing for my son. Heart, soul, blood. And then as soon as it comes out, people are like, yeah, but what about for daughters? And I'm like, <laughs> let's just pause for a moment. Number one, <laughs> see how comprehensive that stuff is before you yell at me. I'm working on one for my daughter right now called 50 Pieces of My Heart. That's 50 key deposits every father needs to make in his daughter's life. So that's what I'm doing with my daughter right wow. now. And that's actually going to be way more. It's going to be way less comprehensive than the primal path, but way more transferable. Meaning I'm literally writing daily devotions for a year. If there's someone who's listening to this, who looks at sort of where they are and the experiences and the the opportunities that you've had and that you've led through and is looking at that and saying, man, I would love to be able to step into that. What advice would you give them? Oh, you know, what we didn't talk about, which is perhaps the great passion of my life is how to walk with God. You know, so it would just be all fruitfulness comes from intimacy with Jesus. That's the message of John 15. And I think maybe the one thing probably out of desperation and failure and need rather than like I'm so good or I'm so godly is that I've just basically sought to abide in God's love. So I, I feel like in that process, the fruit comes from enjoying Jesus' love and having my identity formed and having my motives continually um, pruned and challenged to just try and please God and bear fruit. 
and very suspicious of worldly ambition. Mm. I'm very suspicious of ministry ambition. And um, so I think for the first half of your life, God basically beats the crap out of your motives because he just has no interest in you becoming a failure by trying to please yourself with God slapped on top. But I, I would just say just like cherish and prize intimacy with God and everything else will take care of itself. Yeah. And so I have sought to seek first the kingdom of God and just trusted that whatever I need will be added. Now, what does that look like practically? I don't know, probably three hours of time with God a day. So it's like super intense and strategic, yeah. but not in the way that you would think. Not like psycho intense, like, oh God, I intercede. Lord, I fast two meals a day. That's not the like, Korean way to do it, by yes, the way. You know, it's primarily about enjoying God. How do you enjoy God? Well, you've got to figure out the way that God's wired you, how you connect with him. Yeah. So, you know, it's crazy. I mean, I'm, I'm here in New York. I feel like I have more leadership challenges than I've ever had more external stress than I've experienced in probably a decade. And I've never been internally more filled with peace, life, love, joy, and the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, I'm, I am, my interior life is well-ordered and thriving, and I tend to it every day. John dropped out of school, moved to a new country, started new ministries, planted new churches, developed his own field guide to fatherhood, and amidst all the dramatic ways that God has moved and is moving through him, the great passion of his life is walking with God. And I can't help but believe that God is able to accomplish all these great things in his life because that's John's great passion, to walk with God. If you'd like to follow John, you can find him on Twitter and Instagram at John Tyson. And if you're in New York City and would like to hear him preach, I'll put a link to Church of the City in the show notes. And if you'd like to purchase the Primal Path study, you'll find that in the show notes as well. If you're new to the show, please don't forget to subscribe and to leave a review on iTunes and find us on social at The Pursuit Cast. And if you've just joined us and like what you've heard, go back and listen to season one to hear more. Now, as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the way. How much of the success of your ministry is due to your Australian accent? Well, you know, it's really hard for me to measure. (laughs) When I go back to Australia and compare the preaching fruit, I'm trying to figure out... You should try an American accent back then. I, I mean, you can only do so much. <laughs> Preaching's hard enough as it is. 